0: Good morning. I'm really, really excited about this new series that we're starting today called The Acts of the Apostles, A Call to Action. There's a reason why the book that we're going to be studying is called Acts of the Apostles. It is the story of how the church began, how the gospel of Jesus Christ spread throughout the world through the acts, through the actions of the apostles. So it is that record. It's an accurate record of that. But it's also a call to believers like us, to churches like ours today. The book of Acts is, yes, an accurate record, but it's more than a history book of their actions. It is the inspired Word of God. And because it's the inspired Word of God, it is helpful to us. It is helpful to teach us how to apply biblical truths into our everyday lives. Specifically, the book of Acts gives us some insight into how we can live out the mission of Jesus Christ. The mission of Jesus that He gave to His disciples, that He gave to us, is to make disciples, to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded us That is a call to action that wasn't just for the original disciples, the original apostles. That's a call to action for us today. One of those apostles named Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he wrote this this book in a narrative style, in a story style. What makes that, at least for me, uh, that makes it easy to follow. It's interesting. These stories are amazing, and they're well-written, But it's more than just a collection of interesting stories that we're going to be studying. It's more than just an accurate history of the early church. What we're going to be reading, what we're going to be studying together throughout the book of Acts is more than just how we do what we do and what we do as a church. It it explains the why. It explains things like, why do we get together for worship? Why do we do this every weekend? It explains to us why we treat this book as something special. These stories inspire us to remember why. Not just that we we are supposed to participate in the Great Commission, but why. Why are we supposed to participate in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with all people? These stories remind us that living a Jesus-centered life is not just a passive memorization of biblical knowledge. This, uh, these stories are going to inspire us to do hard things and to take risks and remind us why that's our calling, so that as many people as possible have the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus as possible. So that as many, as many people as God uh, calls, their lives can be, transformed by the gospel. So I'm really, really excited about the series. I'm going to ask you if you would join me in Acts chapter 1. Open your Bibles. You can use the notes page if that is helpful to you. Acts chapter 1, while you're finding it, let me just take a moment and ask God to help us this morning. Lord, I thank you that we have this facility, that we are able to stay dry this morning, and and that we can sit in comfortable seats together. and, And we just thank you that uh, we have this freedom to gather around your word, that we can come and worship you freely this morning. Lord, I thank you for what you're going to accomplish throughout this series. We want to give you the glory right up front, and we're asking that you would help us to be engaged mentally, spiritually this morning with you, so that the things that we hear, the things that we read, the things that we learn, would be more than just uh, an exercise of of hearing words and, and learning some facts and It really would be a desire that we have to apply these truths to our everyday lives, a desire to surrender our whole selves to you. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Acts begins with the story of how the church began. And that's good for us to know. It's good for us to understand that history. But the call to action that I think jumps Out of these first two chapters is a call to together, a call to together. The the, the word together means, uh, describes a group that gathers. It's defined by those who have a connection, those who have a relationship and are unified in some agreement, unified in some purpose, unified in some action together is a vivid picture that i think is is painted throughout the first couple chapters and it's a repeated phrase that we see in the story so acts chapter 1 uh, records the events that happen after jesus dies on the cross after he rises from the dead and then it also tells us in here that for 40 days he spent with the disciples and some others, he spent those 40 days uh, proving that he was alive and teaching them about the kingdom of God. But I want you to jump in to verse 6 with me and notice this this word that continues to get repeated throughout these first two chapters. So when they met together, they were asking him this question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of heaven? And he answers them uh, that uh, it's not for you to know the times, the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But then he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he reaffirms uh, this, this mission that we have to share the gospel, the kingdom of God. And then if you look down at verse 14 and 15, again, it says they all joined together. And what were they doing? Well, they were constantly in prayer. And it uh, mentions different ones that were together. And, and one of the things they did together was they studied the Word. They, they came to this conclusion that they needed to replace Judas. And why did they come to that conclusion? They came to that conclusion because they were studying the Word of God together and, and wanting to apply those truths in their lives. And so as we, as we develop this, uh, th- these first two chapters, over and over again we see this picture of, of the apostles and followers of Jesus gathered together around Jesus. Jesus then ascends back to heaven with the promise of returning one day, a promise that, that we still eagerly wait for today. Chapter 2, verse 1 starts this way. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, I'm going to pause there for just a moment because if the story is new to you, if you are new in your faith, uh, new to, to the Bible, you might, might not know what Pentecost is. So we'll just take a moment and explain that. Pentecost was, was originally a Jewish feast. It was a celebration of the wheat harvest. And so there were just tons of people in Jerusalem celebrating Pentecost, celebrating this wheat harvest from all over. Uh, Jewish people, converts to Judaism from all over the place. Uh, the, the city was full of people who were celebrating. And that's that's the time period in which, that's the particular day in which this took place. But But they were together. I want to read what happened. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and and filled the whole house that they were sitting, in which they were sitting. So where, where are they? They are together when this took place. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why? Because it's Pentecost. It's the wheat festival, the wheat harvest celebration. So you got all these people in the city. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Because each each one of them heard them speaking in his own language, which is a pretty incredible miracle. And rightly so, verse 7 says that they were utterly amazed and they asked themselves, are are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? And it gives a whole list here of, of different nation groups, different people groups that were there that day in verses 9 10 and 11 and uh, they they say in verse 11 verse the second part we hear them declaring the wonders of god in our own tongues in our own language verse 12 amazed perplexed they ask one another what does this mean it's a valid question what is what does all of this mean this is incredible this is amazing this is a miracle what does it what does it mean but then verse 13 kind of throws a curveball into the story. Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. These guys are drunk. I find that to be fascinating. I think that is, that is really interesting. You would, you would think that this miracle that they are all witnessing, right? Everyone's seeing the same thing happening. And you would think that this miracle of languages would be something that everyone would look at and say, obviously, this this is coming from the power of God. This is clear evidence that God was doing something out of the ordinary. But some concluded, no, these people are drunk. And I I read that, that makes absolutely no sense. Now, maybe it's because they were the ones who were actually drunk, maybe the accusers. I mean, it is a a celebration in the city. Maybe that's where that came from. I don't know. But verse 15 of of chapter 2, as Peter addressed the crowd, he pushes back on what they were saying. And his, his pushback is, these men are not drunk as you suppose or as you accuse it's only 9 in the morning. That's his explanation, who gets drunk at 9 in the morning. That's, that's kind of his pushback. And I don't know. I mean, I get his point. But I think there's a better pushback if, if, uh, if it would have been me in that moment. I, I think I would have pushed back this way, saying, how, how is it possible? How does getting drunk give you the ability to speak a language that you didn't learn how to speak. How does that happen? That's not not how it works. It's not one of the side effects of getting drunk. Now, there are things that happen to your speech when you are drunk, but suddenly becoming multilingual is not one of the side effects of getting drunk. I read that, and it's just a reminder to me, it's a reminder to you that there are always going to be people in our lives that do not want to hear, do not want to see the truth, no matter how obvious it is. That's just part of living in a fallen world. But I love that Peter doesn't let that rejection derail him from his mission. Peter gives this incredible gospel sermon throughout the rest of this chapter about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of that sermon, he calls the crowd to repentance, to repent of their sin, to trust Jesus Christ as their forgiver of sin, to get baptized in the name of Jesus. Again, if you are If you are new in your faith, if you are new to church, baptism is a powerful declaration of faith in Jesus Christ. It it is a symbol of spiritual cleansing, the spiritual cleansing that happens when we trust Christ as our forgiver, when we trust Christ as the the leader of our lives to, to make us right with God and give us the Holy Spirit. There's a spiritual cleansing that happens when we trust Jesus as our Savior And and baptism is a visible symbol of, of what has taken place spiritually for us. It's also an act of obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus gives this mission to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And so when we get baptized, it is an act of obedience to Jesus A few weeks ago, we had a baptism service at the Martinsburg Pool and over 20 people got baptized that evening. They were obedient to Jesus in getting baptized. They they publicly declared their faith in in Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior, and it was incredible. It was a wonderful experience together. But you know what made that night even more special than the fact that Over 20 people surrendered their lives in that moment in obedience to Jesus in baptism. Even more special than that was the fact that we had this huge number. I think it was probably our biggest crowd that we've had uh, at a baptism. And uh, to be together and share that moment together as a church family was just amazing. And those of you who, who were there... Uh, you know, it wasn't just you who received the blessing. Everyone that was there participating in that received the blessing. We walked away that night blessed and encouraged. But it wasn't just the blessing that you received, your presence. You were a blessing to someone else because that's the power of together. Later on in the book of Acts there's this story of Philip, and an Ethiopian, who is curious about the gospel. He wants to be made right with God, and he, he's not exactly sure uh, how, to, how to make that happen. And so Philip explains the gospel to him, and then he, uh, they're in the middle of nowhere, but there's some water, and they find this water, and, they, and Philip baptizes him. And it's just Philip and this Ethiopian and whoever the Ethiopian uh, had with him in his travels from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. This is a very small, small group of people, middle of nowhere. There's not this big audience. Now, was that powerful? Absolutely. Was that special? Absolutely. Was it meaningful? Yes. But I want you to imagine the excitement. I want you to imagine the amount of praise that was experienced in verse 41. So, with verse 40, with many other words... Uh, Peter warns them, he pleads with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message, the message of the gospel of Jesus, they were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. If you can even imagine what that day, what what those moments, what those times in baptism must have been like together. They experienced that Together, So chapters 1 and 2, it's it's just this incredible story. You've got these tongues of fire flying around. You have miraculous language-speaking abilities. Thousands of people getting baptized and committing to live Jesus-centered lives. This was the day that the Holy Spirit began to indwell and empower every believer. This was the day that the Holy Spirit began to spiritually baptize believers into the family of God that we now call the church. Salvation from sin and hell is an individual decision to repent of sin, to trust Jesus and and His sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection from the grave to make us right with God, to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, to live in us as our guide, our comforter, our our spiritual strength, uh, to to help us endure the hardships of life. He's the one, the Holy Spirit's the one who transforms us from the inside out. So salvation is this individual decision to trust Jesus. Discipleship also, an individual decision that, that we all have to make to surrender our whole selves to to the Lordship, the leadership of Jesus Christ, to choose to follow Him every day. So there are individual choices and decisions that uh, that we have to make in, in trusting Jesus as our Savior and following Him every day. But I want you to notice the results of thousands of individual decisions to do that, what does it result in? Verse 42, they, right, they all had, every one of the people had to make a decision to, to trust Christ, to follow Christ, but it resulted in this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles' Uh, those signs and wonders are, are validating the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the believers were, here's the word again, together. They had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They they broke bread in their homes. They ate together. Do you see the word, how many times it gets repeated with glad, sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In the first chapter, we see that their number was, at first there in chapter one, about 120 of them. And then it grows into the thousands, which is amazing. But even as... This, this group of, of believers grows ex, you know, exponentially. They continued to be committed to together. This day of Pentecost has been called the birth of the church. But I think we need to take a moment and discuss what that means. When we call it the birth of the church, so you have the, this, this incredible sermon that Peter does thousands of people getting baptized. Well, what was the next thing that takes place? Did they get together and have a building project meeting? Nowadays, we have churches that have uh, you know signs or plaques, and they, uh, they say, first church of, and then whatever, right? Are they all lying? Is it all false advertising? Are these buildings not really the first church of whatever? I think a lot of you were... Uh, here when we did our series through the seven churches, that were addressed in a letter that the Apostle John wrote. And that letter, we call Revelation, was sent to churches throughout ancient cities in present-day Turkey. And I think that when we were going through those seven churches, some of you, I think, may have expected pictures like this. Uh, you probably expected, some of you, that when I went to Turkey, that I was going to go to the church in Ephesus and bring home some pictures. This is uh, the church in Ephesus or whatever. Now, these are churches. This one down here is Laodicea. The one, uh, these two are, that one's from Laodicea. That's the baptistry in Laodicea. That, those two are two different churches in Istanbul. Uh, the one up there is presently a, a mosque where they've actually scratched out any sim, uh, symbolism of Christian faith and have put up uh, symbols of the Muslim faith. Uh, but this, this is a church in Istanbul as well, this one in the middle, where a lot of the discussions about doctrine and inspiration of Scripture took place, and they debated these things. Uh, so these are, these are important historic uh, buildings but these weren't built until the 300s these weren't these weren't the church buildings that the early church the people that we are reading about in this chapter that's not where they met they didn't build those those churches the early church the people that we're reading about today they they met in homes of wealthy homeowners so if the church is not a a building what is the church Jesus talked about His church in Matthew 18 as a community uh, who, who holds each other accountable. Jesus said the gates of hell would not overcome His church. And in both cases, Jesus said those things before there were any church buildings. So if the church is not a building, then what is it? The original Greek word that we translate into the English word church, the Greek word is ekklesia, and it means, ekklesia means a gathering, it means an assembly, and at the time that this New Testament was written, you could have used that Greek word ekklesia to talk about any gathering, any assembly of people. Uh, you could have used it to talk about a political rally. You could have used the word "ecclesia to talk about a football game. Any type of gathering that was called together for some purpose, that was the word ecclesia. And the New Testament writers are using the word ecclesia to describe a gathering to describe an assembly of not Penn State fans, not political, Uh, rally-goers, but rather of Jesus followers. A church is a gathering, an assembly around Jesus. The word church, because of that definition, the word church means together. Together with other believers gathered around Jesus. The church is not defined by the building that believers gather in. I had the the privilege to to worship with churches, with believers in places like Haiti and Nigeria and Cameroon. And to be honest, their buildings, they're really not much more than poorly crafted uh, picnic pavilions. They're, they're, They're nothing... Or uh, ornate or or uh, fancy about them. They're functional. They're not comfortable. They don't have climate control. Um, but those churches are amazing. Those those gathering of believers are incredible. They're gathered because they love Jesus and they want to worship Jesus, and it's amazing. Their churches are not defined by their buildings. They are defined by the fact that they are gathered together around Jesus. Now, we are very, very thankful to God for the, for the new building that He is providing for us. And believe me, more than anybody, when, when we get to the end of all of this, you know, I know everyone's excited, everyone wants but I'm telling you, but when we get to the end of it, nobody... Uh, is going to have a heart more filled with gratitude and thankfulness than the staff uh, here that uh, sees this every day and is in, in deep in the weeds every day. We're excited. We, we want to see this, uh, this thing completed. And when we get to the end of it, it's the, there's, only, there's only one who will receive praise. There's only one that we will look to and say, God, you did this. Uh, because you know, it's, it's taken a while and there's been challenges and, and uh, there's been headaches and all of that. And so we'll get to the end and we'll say, God, you did it, thank you. And we will be thankful. We'll be thankful because you know, when everything is on one floor, that's gonna make life so much easier for so many people, especially those that, that uh, have physical limitations. It's gonna make life a lot easier. It's gonna make gathering together so much easier for so many people. Uh, when we have the new children's space, having that safe, exciting environment for kids. And, and uh, we're planning on adding uh, intentional space that will be just designated for kids who have special needs. Uh, no, As far as I know, there aren't other churches that have thought that through and are actually making spaces. So we'll, we'll, we'll be able to offer something to families uh, so they can come and worship and gather and know that their children will have a wonderful experience. Having more room to sit, having more space for cars, uh, means that our gathering can continue to grow if God chooses to do that, to have a bigger impact in the community. And all of those things are good. They are wonderful, and we praise God for all of it. But I don't want us at any point along this process to forget who we are. We cannot forget why we gather together whether it's in this room or on the other side of that wall the why doesn't change we gather together week after week around jesus because he is our king he's our savior our redeemer our creator he's our solid rock he is our life anchor he's he's our shepherd our our lord our mediator with the father he's he's our source of life our source of truth he's our prince of peace He's our everything. The call of every believer is to together. And the church is the gathering together around Jesus that we are called to. During the the pandemic, there was this commercial on the radio about social distancing. That was fun, right? Social distancing was fun. And in this commercial, there's this tagline. And you know, they're, again, that's what they're promoting. They're promoting social distancing and all the fun things you can do in social distancing and, and uh, trying to make it sound like it was something great. And they get to the end and their tagline was this, we are all alone together. That's what they said in the commercial. We are all alone together. Now, if the person... Who wrote out the script for that commercial was in the room, or listening online? I am going to just apologize in advance because I'm about to offend you. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. If we were living in the South, I, I would say, "Oh, bless your heart, you tried." Right? I mean You cannot be alone together. The only meaning that I could think of to make any sense out of that phrase is, we're all supposed to be miserable at the same time. Like, that's the only thing I could think of. Because even if you're talking about uh, people who are sitting in the same room, I've seen this, you've got people sitting in the same room, they're technically together, but they're all doing this, staring at their phones, they're not engaging with one another. Okay, but that's not what the commercial was talking about because they were trying to keep us uh, apart. It makes no sense. Some of you uh, may be new in your faith, may be new to church, and maybe you've never heard the phrase, be the church. Most of us probably have, right? You've heard the phrase, or maybe you've seen it on shirts or bumper stickers, be the church. I think originally that phrase, when it first kind of got popularity, meant don't just do religious activity on Sunday morning. Be a follower of Christ every day. Live a Jesus-centered life every day, everywhere you go. And that's a really good challenge, which makes a lot of sense. But I think somewhere along the way, and for me at least, it became very apparent during, during the pandemic, that the phrase, be the church, for some, it took on... This, I think, unintended, but for sure, unbiblical meaning. Somewhere along the way, the phrase, be the church, was being used in a way to say this. We don't need to gather with other believers. We just need to love Jesus. We just need to worship Jesus in our homes, worship Jesus in our car, be nice to people, spread the love of Jesus wherever we are. That's how we can be the church. And it sounds somewhat reasonable, I suppose. The church is, in fact, made up of Jesus followers, and Jesus followers are supposed to love Jesus every day and and spread the love of Christ everywhere that we go. Not just on Sunday, not just when we gather in a special building. That That is all true, but here's the problem. If the word church means gathering of Jesus followers which it literally means then to say we don't need to gather with other believers to be the church is saying we can be we can be the gathering of Jesus followers without gathering with other Jesus followers we can gather together all alone we can be alone together it's it's silly Now, discipleship, that's different. Discipleship is learning how to live a Jesus-centered life. It's learning how to share the gospel with others. And uh, it's something that, that every one of us, if you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ as your forgiver, as your Savior, as your Lord, yes, those are things that individually we need to be doing every day. It is essential to our to our spiritual health and growth as a believer. But a huge part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is in fact accomplished by being together. When we read through the New Testament, there's there's spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to you as a believer in Christ, has given to me. And we are expected to use those spiritual gifts to minister to each other, when we are together. There are just certain things that we cannot accomplish, that we are called by God to accomplish if we're we're not together. Being together with the gathering, with the assembly, with the ecclesia of Jesus' followers, that's what we're called to. We are called together. And if you go back to uh, those verses in 42 through 47, you can see very clearly the early church was all about together. Verse 44, it's repeated over and over again. All the believers were together. What were they doing? Well, they met for worship together. They, they took care of each other. They, they were part of each other's lives. They did life together. One verse says they, devoted, they were devoted to learning from the apostles' teaching. Now, how do you think they did that? I can tell you it wasn't you know, a one-on-one tutor situation that they did at the coffee shop. It wasn't an online experience. They did that together. Fellowship. There's a a no-brainer, right? Fellowship. Now, I'll say this. Private worship is really, really important. We all, as followers of Christ, should have private worship throughout the week. Spending time alone with God In prayer, in the study of His Word, that's discipleship. We should all be doing that. Family worship is wonderful. It is beautiful. Having family devotions and praying together with your spouse or with your children, singing songs loudly to God in the car, these these are all wonderful expressions of worship. But fellowship, that's something we do together. There's no such thing as private fellowship breaking of bread, these meals, communion, prayer, these are all things that they did together. Is the horse dead? Like, I've been beating the horse for 20 minutes now. Did you get it? The book of Acts is more than a history book. It's a call to action. And the first call to action that I see that jumps out in these first two chapters is this call to together. If you don't yet have a personal relationship with Jesus and you're tired of feeling lonely, you're tired of walking through life feeling lost, Jesus is inviting you to a life of together with Him. And I'm not saying it's a problem-free life. Every Christian in the room uh, knows uh, that just because we're a follower of Jesus and, and, and we've trusted Christ with our, with our souls, uh, that doesn't eliminate problems from our lives. We have challenges like everybody else, and we're imperfect people like everybody else. But a life with spiritual strength, a life to have all the spiritual power that you need to faith, face life challenges, that's what Jesus offers when we when we do life together with Him. The joys of life are sweeter when we experience them with Jesus. The lows of life are never hopeless when we walk through them with Jesus. But the only way to experience eternal life after death and this abundant life that Jesus is offering to us now, the only way to experience that is to ask Jesus by faith to forgive you of sin, to make you right with God, to to come into your life and be the leader of your life. And that is a prayer of faith that He will answer. If you do have a personal relationship with Jesus, then you know you've you've no doubt experienced that life is just better together with Jesus. But just like the body is better when all of its parts are together, right? if uh, if you were to lose an appendage of some sort, uh, you could function, you could probably get through life, but it's, it's better when you've got all the parts and they all function the way they're supposed to. The body of Christ, the church, we're better together. And I just want to say I'm not trying to run anyone over with a guilt train this morning. That's not my intention. Here's what I know. I know that there are some folks, I know them personally, I know there's some folks that are home and, and they're, they're watching right now. They would love nothing more than to be here. They can't. They, di- they can't physically can't. They'd love to. I want them to know, I want, I want them to know that we, we love you and, and we wish that you were able to be with us. They, I think more than anyone, know that the church is better when we're together. Think about some of the things that we experience together as a church they are just better. We, we, are, we are, our worship, our worship is, is louder, our, our worship is even greater blessing when we are together. Our praise for God's blessings. You, know, you, have, you have praise in your heart for God's blessings. You know what multiplies that praise when you get to share it with other believers. That praise then gets multiplied. And that's better. Our study of Scripture and, and how to apply it to our lives is sweet and wonderful when it's private and when it's in our own homes and when it's with, with the Lord. It's wonderful, it's beautiful but it's even more meaningful and and powerful and and, uh, special when we get the opportunity to do it together. Our comfort and our courage that we have in life that comes from the Spirit of God, yes, but it's amplified. It's greater when we are together. Our fellowship is sweeter. It's more meaningful together. So I'll leave you with this question, what needs to be your next step towards together? We're all in different spots with that. Some of you are committed uh, to gathering together every Sunday. You don't miss. Um, Some of you are, are committed to gathering in small groups, and that's important to you. You've made that commitment. You're blessed by that. So we're maybe in different places with some of that, and maybe for some that... Next step needs to be a greater commitment to Sunday worship or to be part of a grace group or a youth group or kids' ministry. Just remember that our local church is a gathering of Jesus followers. That's who we gather together around. We're just better when we're together. That's the call to action of the church, a call to together.